Chapter Sixteen of The Return of Doctor Fu Manchu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elaine Tweddle. The Return of Doctor Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. Chapter Sixteen: The Questing Hands. Within my view, from the corner of the room where I sat in deepest shadow, through the partly opened window, it was screwed like our own, were rows of glass-houses gleaming in the moonlight, and, beyond them, orderly ranks of flower-beds extending into a blue haze of distance. By reason of the moon's position no light entered the room, but my eyes, from long watching, were grown familiar with the darkness, and I could see Burke quite clearly as he lay in the bed between my post and the window. I seemed to be back again in those days of the troubled past when first Nayland Smith and I had come to grips with the servants of Dr. Fu Manchu. A more peaceful scene than this flower-painted corner of Essex it would be difficult to imagine, but, either because of my knowledge that its peace was chimerical, or because of that outflung consciousness of danger which, actually, or in my imagination, preceded the coming of the Chinaman's agents, to my seeming the silence throbbed electrically and the night was laden with stilly omens already cramped by my journey in the market-cart i found it difficult to remain very long in any one position what information had burke to sell he had refused for some reason to discuss the matter that evening and now enacting the part allotted him by nayland smith he feigned sleep consistently although at intervals he would whisper to me his doubts and fears all the chances were in our favour to-night, for whilst I could not doubt that Dr. Fu Manchu was set upon the removal of the ex-officer of New York Police, neither could I doubt that our presence in the farm was unknown to the agents of the Chinaman. According to Burke, constant attempts had been made to achieve Fu Manchu's purpose, and had only been frustrated by his, Burke's, wakefulness. There was every probability that another attempt would be made to-night. Anyone who has been forced by circumstance to undertake such a vigil as this will be familiar with the marked changes, corresponding with the phases of the earth's movement, which take place in the atmosphere at midnight, at two o'clock, and again at four o'clock. During those four hours falls a period wherein all life is at its lowest ebb, and every physician is aware that there is a greater likelihood of a patient's passing between midnight and four a.m. than at any other period during the cycle of the hours. Tonight I became specially aware of this lowering of vitality, and now, with the night at the darkest phase which precedes the dawn, an indescribable dread, such as I had known before in my dealings with the Chinaman, assailed me, when I was least prepared to combat it. The stillness was intense, then— "'Here it is,' whispered Burke from the bed. The chill at the very centre of my being, which but corresponded with the chill of all surrounding nature at that hour, became intensified, keener at the whispered words. I rose stealthily out of my chair, and, from my nest of windows, watched, watched intently, the bright oblong of the window. Without the slightest heralding sound, a black silhouette crept up against the pane, the silhouette of a small, malformed head, a dog-like head, deep-set in square shoulders. Malignant eyes peered intently in. Higher it arose, that wicked head, against the window, then crouched down on the sill and became less sharply defined as the creature stooped to the opening below. There was a faint sound of sniffing. 
judging from the stark horror which i experienced myself i doubted now if burke could sustain the role allotted him in beneath the slightly raised window came a hand perceptible to me despite the darkness of the room it seemed to project from the black silhouette outside the pane to be thrust forward and forward and forward that small hand with the outstretched fingers the unknown possesses unique terrors and since i was unable to conceive what manner of thing this could be which extending its incredibly long arms now sought the throat of the man upon the bed i tasted of that sort of terror which ordinarily one only knows in dreams quick sir quick screamed burke starting up from the pillow the questing hands had reached his throat choking down an urgent dread that i had of touching the thing which reached through the window to kill the sleeper i sprang across the room and grasped the rigid hairy forearms heavens never have i felt such muscles such tendons as those beneath the hirsute skin they seemed to be of steel wire and with a sudden frightful sense of impotence i realized i was as powerless as a child to relax that strangle-hold burke was making the most frightful sounds and quite obviously was being asphyxiated before my eyes smith i cried smith help help for god's sake despite the confusion of my mind i became aware of sounds outside and below me twice the thing at the window coughed there was an incessant lash-like cracking when some shouted words which i was unable to make out and finally the staccato report of a pistol snarling like that of a wild beast came from the creature with the hairy arms together with renewed coughing but the steel grip relaxed not one iota i realized two things the first that in my terror at the suddenness of the attack i had omitted to act as prearranged the second that i had discredited the strength of the visitant whilst smith had foreseen it Desisting in my vain endeavour to pit my strength against that of the nameless thing, I sprang back across the room and took up the weapon which had been left in my charge earlier in the night, but which I had been unable to believe it would be necessary to employ. This was a sharp and heavy axe, which Nayland Smith, when I had met him in Covent Garden, had brought with him, to the great amazement of Weymouth and myself. As I leaped back to the window and uplifted this primitive weapon, a second shot sounded from below, and more fierce snarling, coughing, and guttural mutterings assailed my ears from beyond the pane. Lifting the heavy blade, I brought it down with all my strength upon the nearer of those hairy arms where it crossed the window ledge, severing muscle, tendon, and bone as easily as a knife might cut cheese. A shriek! A shriek neither human nor animal, but gruesomely compounded of both, followed, and merged into a choking cough. Like a flash, the other shaggy arm was withdrawn, and some vaguely seen body went rolling down the sloping red tiles, and crashed on the ground beneath. With a second piercing shriek, louder than that recently uttered by Burke, wailing through the night from somewhere below, I turned desperately to the man on the bed, who now was become significantly silent a candle with matches stood upon a table hard by and my fingers far from steady i set about obtaining a light this accomplished i stood the candle upon the little chest of drawers and returned to burke's side merciful god i cried of all the pictures which remain in my memory some of them dark enough i can find none more horrible than that which now confronted me in the dim candlelight 
Burke lay crosswise on the bed, his head thrown back and sagging. One rigid hand he held in the air, and with the other grasped the hairy forearm which I had severed with the axe, for in a death-grip the dead fingers were still fastened, vice-like, at his throat. His face was nearly black, and his eyes projected from their sockets horribly. Mastering my repugnance, I seized the hideous piece of bleeding anatomy and strove to release it. It defied all my efforts. In death it was as implacable as in life. I took a knife from my pocket, and tendon by tendon cut away that uncanny grip from Burke's throat. But my labour was in vain. Burke was dead. I think I failed to realise this for some time. My clothes were sticking clammily to my body, I was bathed in perspiration, and, shaking furiously, I clutched at the edge of the window, avoiding the bloody patch upon the ledge, and looked out over the roofs to where, in more distant plantations, I could hear excited voices. What had been the meaning of that scream which I had heard, but to which in my frantic state of mind I paid comparatively little attention? There was a great stirring all about me. "'Smith!' I cried from the window. "'Smith, for mercy's sake, where are you?' Footsteps came racing up the stairs. Behind me the door burst open, and Nayland Smith stumbled into the room. "'God!' he said, and started back in the doorway. "'Have you got it, Smith?' I demanded hoarsely. "'Insanity's name! What is it? What is it?' "'Come downstairs,' replied Smith quietly, "'and see for yourself.' He turned his head aside from the bed. Very unsteadily I followed him down the stairs and through the rambling old house out into the stone-paved courtyard. There were figures moving at the end of a long alleyway between the glass houses, and one, carrying a lantern, stooped over something which lay upon the ground. "'That's Burke's cousin with a lantern,' whispered Smith in my ear. "'Don't tell him yet.' I nodded, and we hurried up to join the group. I found myself looking down at one of those thick-set Burmans whom I always associated with Fu Manchu's activities. He lay quite flat, face downward, but the back of his head was a shapeless, blood-dotted mass, and a heavy stock-whip, the butt-end ghastly because of the blood and hair which clung to it, lay beside him. I started back appalled as Smith caught my arm. "'It turned on its keeper,' he hissed in my ear. "'I wounded it twice from below, and you severed one arm. In its insensate fury, its unreasoning malignity, it turned—' and there lies its second victim. Then, it's gone, Petrie. It has the strength of four men even now. Look. He stooped, and from the clenched left hand of the dead Burman extracted a piece of paper and opened it. Hold the lantern a moment, he said. As I expected, a leaf of Burke's notebook. It worked by scent. He turned to me with an odd expression in his grey eyes. "'I wonder what piece of my personal property Fu Manchu has pilfered,' he said, in order to enable it to sleuth me. He met the gaze of the man holding the lantern. "'Perhaps you had better return to the house,' he said, looking him squarely in the eyes. The other's face blanched. "'You don't mean, sir, you don't mean—' "'Brace up,' said Smith, laying his hand upon his shoulder. "'Remember, he chose to play with fire.' One wild look the man cast from Smith to me, then went off, staggering toward the farm. "'Smith,' I began. He turned to me with an impatient gesture. "'Weymouth has driven into Upminster,' he snapped, "'and the whole district will be scoured before morning. They probably motored here, but the sounds of the shots will have enabled whoever was in the car to make good his escape. And, exhausted from loss of blood, its capture is only a matter of time, Petrie.' 
End of chapter 16. Recording by Elaine Tweddle, Stirling, Ontario.